0: One of the biggest challenges when it comes to managing a stack is making sure that you are, you're easy to maintain compliance with security and privacy. It is one of the biggest challenges for a, uh, for a SaaS company these days. And sometimes it means that you don't go with the cheapest thing because the cheapest thing for acquisition cost may cost you a lot more when it comes to getting it into compliance over time.
1: Hey, it's Dan McGaugh. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack management firm, McGaugh.io. Each week, I speak to executives to find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, I've got Peter Mahoney, the CEO of Plana. Now, Plana is a marketing performance planning platform. It's a system for like building and managing or optimizing your marketing plans. And it's another SaaS tool that's going to kill the spreadsheet. Peter has some amazing experience. He got his start in the industry as a marketing rep for IBM. And he's also formerly the CMO of Nuance, an AI communications platform that was just acquired by Microsoft for $20 billion. Now, Peter is incredibly knowledgeable on all things stack, and he brings some amazing Amazing perspectives. At Nuance, he had the opportunity to go through over a hundred acquisitions and he had to connect the dots of his own stack to all the stacks of the companies that they were acquiring. And he had a lot of unique challenges when he went through that process. He's also got some amazing insight into security vulnerabilities of the stack and some controversial views on attribution.
0: I think most attribution is hooey, it's witchcraft, it doesn't work. His
1: advice on stack implementation for small versus large companies is pretty unique and it doesn't stop there with all the knowledge he dropped in this interview. Now it's time for me to shut up so you can learn more about Peter.
0: My name is Peter Mahoney and I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Plana, which is a company that makes a platform for building, managing and optimizing your marketing plans and how you spend your money.
1: Now that's a pretty interesting product, especially for this audience. I mean, let's take a, a step back though. I mean, tell me a little bit about your career, how you progressed to this role. Because this had to be something that built
0: up over time, right? It did. So I started my career uh, actually in in a sales role, and that was an accident. So my education, I have degrees in physics and computer science. But what what I ended up doing is someone, one of my advisors said, hey, you you should actually apply to this job at IBM as a systems engineer because you're sort of a technical thinking guy and you like people. And I said, yeah, cool, I'm into that. Along the way, they said to me in the interview process, they said, hey, we think you'd fit really well in marketing. And six weeks later, I figured out when IBM says marketing, they mean sales. So I got accidentally into a sales job. The biggest chunk of my career was uh, when I worked at a company called Nuance. Uh, Nuance is a leading provider of voice and AI kind of tech and uh, was just recently acquired by Microsoft for $20 billion. So that was a nice outcome for them. I was there for a number 13 years uh, and then I I left there and I started Plana. So that's that's the story.
1: Interesting. So I guess like what I'm curious about is, were there things at Nuance that caused you to start Plana and, and help us better understand what Plana does?
0: Yeah. So when I was at Nuance, I, uh, I was thrilled to be in this job, by the way. It was really exciting. And I did it for a number of years. I, I was in the CMO role for seven years, which is you know about three times the typical CMO tenure. And I saw a lot of change and a lot of growth during that time. And one other really important thing to know about Nuance, during my 13 years, we acquired more than 100 companies. So get your head around that. I mean, it's freaky. The number of companies that we acquired, and some of them were little acquisitions, but others were pretty big and transformative. So it meant literally rebranding the company, redoing the messaging fairly significantly. I actually named the company Nuance. It had been named ScanSoft before. So I went through all these different changes. And but point being, I started to see these patterns over and over again, Dan. And one of the things that was really interesting to me is that I was sort of an operationally focused guy because I had been a general manager before then, managing to a PL. I was always focused on what are we doing with the money? How is it getting us better results? So I used to go to the marketing leaders and I'd ask them, I asked them, said, Show me your plan. And Whenever I said that, what happened was really strange. Most of the time, people would give me a dumb look or a scared look sometimes, like, holy cow, someone's going to actually ask me for a plan. No one's ever done this. More often than not, when they showed me something, it was a spreadsheet. So literally, they showed me a spreadsheet and it was a list of stuff. And I said, Well, what's this? And they said, Well, it's what we're doing. Well, what's it related to? I don't know. Right. So it was it was really shocking. I just saw this over and over and over again. And it really struck me that there was a really big opportunity to figure out how to really professionalize, systemize the way that marketing planning happened, and how it was really connecting the strategic side of marketing, which is about sort of the planning and strategy, to the operational side, which is about marketing execution. So that's the big problem we saw, and that's what we decided to go solve with Plana, and that's what we do. We really connect the plan to the operations. So if you think about it, there are three worlds that we try to bridge. The center of the universe should be your plan, and in uh, any good leader needs a really good plan. And... Most people have a plan. If they have one, it's in a PowerPoint deck or it's in a binder somewhere, which is insane with the way that the world changes these days. So what we do first is we bring it online. What are your goals? What are your targets? What are your metrics? What's your campaign strategy? What's the campaign framework that you're working? We bring that into an online interactive system and then you connect it to these two other worlds. On one side, you have the outcomes. So that's really typically from your CRM, you know, from Salesforce or HubSpot or something like that. So what did you achieve versus what you said you were going to achieve in your plan? And on the other side, we connected to your financial systems. What did you spend versus what you said you were going to spend on which campaigns and goals and ideas? And by connecting those three worlds, you know, the plan, the outcomes and the money, you can optimize that system in real time. That's what Plana is all about.
1: I love it. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about a lot with people is that basically it's death to the spreadsheet and it's death to the PowerPoint right now. Uh, I see a lot of companies who are, everybody's killing spreadsheets. I even own one of those companies. I own utm.io and it's the killer of the UTM spreadsheet, right? So and that's literally our tagline. Death to the UTM spreadsheet. And in your case, you're also designing a tool, which is basically killing spreadsheets. Because I've designed many marketing campaigns and plans. I was the head of marketing at multiple companies, and it was always a PowerPoint deck and then a a spreadsheet and trying to get the manual work to get it going. So I think you definitely are doing something that's quite amazing. All right, so let's talk about the death of the spreadsheet. In case you didn't know, the spreadsheet is going to die for a lot of different use cases. You may be using the spreadsheet for something now, but will it eventually be replaced by a SaaS tool? Probably. A great example of this is QuickBooks. It might be mind-boggling to think that a paper and pen was the way that we did accounting uh, in the past, right? There used to be these dusty old offices full of binders with financial statements, receipts, profit and loss statements, and more. Eventually, we all saw that there was a digital spreadsheet that came out to help us be able to track these things and fix that. And now we have QuickBooks that replaced that spreadsheet. Now, with a few clicks of a button, you can generate reports, keep track of inventory or whatever else your business may need. And that's all done because a SaaS product came out and replaced the spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet, of course, replaced something else. But the spreadsheet is ultimately part of evolution and is going to die in a lot of circumstances. What Peter is doing is similar, but for marketers, allowing them to optimize their everyday management of their plan to be successful. Another key aspect of this is prediction. Having your data optimized in a tool this way allows you to not only see the day-to-day picture, but it also allows you to build prediction models for the future. And a lot of new SaaS tools are going to replace the spreadsheet in your business. Now, I recommend that you be opportunistic that anything you use a spreadsheet for today will be part of your tech stack tomorrow. So if you have a business idea, you might wanna follow it, or if you see something in business that sucks that's using a spreadsheet, maybe you should find the tool that replaces that spreadsheet. So, either way, let's get back to Peter. What's your big, hairy, audacious goal with Plana, right? Like, are you building this up so you can have a great lifestyle business? Are you looking for a massive exit, trying to raise a ton
0: of money? My my goal is to fundamentally change and improve the way that marketing happens and is executed. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, uh, but the thing that I loved to do at Nuance is I love to help other marketers be better at what they did. And it doesn't mean that I'm the world's best marketer, by the way. What it meant is that I could help them. It's just like the best basketball coaches and the best basketball player. My goal is to help them all be better. And it's one of the reasons we we wrote this book, The Next CMO, because we realized that there was a gap in knowledge out there around not about executing marketing, but how to be a marketing leader and how to run a marketing function. And I did that a lot at Nuance because as we acquired all these companies, I'd often onboard all these new marketing leaders and you could get more out of them. And I had this amazing perspective because I could see over you know, dozens of companies, I could see what they were doing and what was working and what wasn't working. And just bringing in that perspective and making them better was great. So I really love the idea of making marketing better as, as a function. I get really excited about that. And along the way, we think that it can build a really big, meaningful, successful Kind of company, and but I think the goal of improving the way marketing happens and making marketing more successful as a function over time is is what gets me up in the morning.
1: And that's a great mission to have, and I commend you for having that mission to uh, really be able to help marketers. Because I think we're in a big evolutionary state right now, where we're going to see a lot of things in marketing change just because of the way the data, the infrastructure, and all that has happened. And I think your product is definitely one of the, the tools that's helping lead that charge. Now, in your in your business, right, when you think about the KPIs that are helping you understand whether the business is successful, what are the main top three KPIs that you're looking at
0: across your teams? So there, there are a few things. So you look at the high-level things that are really important to measure are, are things like, you know, what's our customer acquisition cost, what's our churn like, uh, what's our LTV? So those are great long-term resultant kind of metrics that you focus on. At the same time, you need to really look at some of the early indicators. So some of the things that we look at are things like uh, time to value. So how quickly can we get a customer up and running? And it's usually some number of weeks to the point when they start to where they're actually extracting value out of the system and get really excited about it. So we try to measure that time. And then it's really about sort of depth of adoption of our platform. Because we know that as we get people really engaging more deeply within the platform, that's a great early indicator of what success and value is going to be. And those, of course, are precursors of long-term renewal and expansion of those customers. But the the first three are about your report card. The other ones that are much more important are about, are you going to get a good report card?
1: yeah. Now, when you you bring up total uh, time to value, right? An amazing metric. I'm just going to call that TTV for fun today. How are you tracking time to value? Like, is there a system, or is it a customer success person?
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So uh, we we use a customer success platform called Churn Zero, which is really amazing, and uh, and it's been a great experience working with the company. By the way, they. Drink their own champagne, eat their own dog food, whatever your poison. And, and really we're good at at onboarding and teaching us how to be better at customer success. So we use them for the for the system of, of record and tracking these things. And of course, it's integrated into our platform. So we sort of get great signals around whether people are using and engaging. But more importantly, it's about setting up the framework and then our, our customer success leadership team is really focused on their goals are around getting that time to value TTV, getting that as, uh, as short as possible so they really push and motivate their teams to try to achieve those metrics. So it's, it's a combination of the system and in the leadership to make sure that you're actually doing something to improve the, the metrics over time.
1: Now I think time to value and depth of adoption are amazing uh, ways to be able to understand whether you're having success in the product. And these seem to be kind of the leading indicators of your LTV and then as well as your churn. I mean, with CAC as an example, right? Like what are the big projects that you're working on now that are impacting your CAC or your lifetime value? Are there big things that you're doing in your strategy that are moving the needle there?
0: On CAC, we're constantly focused on uh, improving CAC overall by sort of breaking it down and identifying sort of the individual stages of our customer acquisition plan and optimizing them. The good news is we use Plana to track that, and so we can see how those things trend over time. Drinking your own champagne, as you might say. I think that's great. That's right. So as you might imagine, there's some work around top-of-the-funnel optimization that happens but one of the things that we do, we track in PlanA, of course, is the, the whole funnel over time and how each one of those metrics is is improving and changing over time. Uh, so we look at things like some of the, the lead progression, which again is, I was accused of, because I was excited about the our marketing team overachieving on their Q1 lead metric. I was accused of... Uh, recently on LinkedIn of focusing on vanity metrics. But I said, no, it's, it's not if it was leads just for leads. But the point is, just like I was saying the time to value is an early indicator of success, leads are an early indicator. Of success, they're necessary but not sufficient. So you you have to have more than that. So focus on the leads, and then you focus on all right. Well, what's the conversion from these leads into qualified opportunities? What's the uh, conversion rate of qualified opportunities into into sales? And then how long do those sales stay and stick and expand, et cetera? So each one of those things needs to be broken down and and optimized. And then one other thing, Dan, that I find really incredibly important that we focus on a lot is looking at the cost per outcome metric for each one of those. So in other words, what's the cost per lead? What's the cost for a qualified opportunity? And what's the cost for customer? In each one of those, of course, are drivers of CAC. And I find that marketers do not universally understand not only what their cost per outcome is, but what's the implied profit per outcome. So if I'm spending $75 to get a lead and my ACV is $10,000 and my conversion is 1% on leads, as an example, then if I do the math, that's $100 that I get in revenue. But if I have got 60% margins, then I've got 60% Dollars of marginal profit for the $75 I spent per lead. So understanding those metrics is incredibly important uh, so that marketers can know they might be jumping up and down and excited about the fact that I've got a $75 cost per lead where they don't realize that the profit in each one is underwater and you're actually destroying economic value.
1: You know, it's interesting to me is like, uh, one of, um, who was the, C- the former CMO of HubSpot? Mike Volpe, I think his name was. Mike Volpe, yeah, yeah. I was listening to a podcast uh, with him and one of the things he talked about is that he came from a finance background and he went into marketing. And... uh I see a ton of really, really successful marketers out there that have come from a finance background, and a lot of it has to do with they are focused on those numbers, right? They really get in bed with the numbers. And in my career, one of the, I mean, I remember my first week at Kissmetrics, I literally wrote an entire financial model for the entire business, the entire funnel. And my CFO was like, you're crazy, but this is amazing. Um, But I think it's extremely important. And many marketers overlook kind of those different stages in there. What are the major building blocks of your stack? I notice you have GA, you've got things like HubSpot. What are the big building blocks around your own product?
0: The center of our world is HubSpot. We're we're big huge HubSpot fans. We we bleed orange. It's interesting because their strategy is is really smart in that they make it really easy as a young company. So when we were starting out, it was really easy to get HubSpot up and running and they had enough capability to get you to the point where you didn't need a bunch of stuff, you didn't need to strap together a bunch of tools. And we we quickly, for like a nanosecond, we were using you know MailChimp and we were using some other really simple tools. And then we quickly realized that as we looked out even 6, 12 months into the future, if we were going to be really successful, we needed a true CRM. In HubSpot was just sort of the obvious for us, and we really dove in deep on it. So we're we're using the marketing hub, the sales hub. We use the service hub, which is the customer service capability. We use it for a lot of workflow automation. We're integrated into our product, uh, so we we really try to get the most out of it. And it's funny because I was prepping for this conversation and just looking through um, the guy who runs all of our uh, technical operations manages sort of the list of all of the stuff in our stack. And I was going to say to you, Dan, that, hey, we, we have such a small number of tools because we're focused on HubSpot. And of course, I just looked at the list and we have 42 products in our stack. <laughs> so help me understand,
1: out of these 42 tools, and don't get me wrong, it sounds like HubSpot is seven of them. Is HubSpot your website? Are you using the website too?
0: No, no, we we actually are. Uh, the website is built on WordPress. So sorry, I've had a,
1: a problem with. I have a lot of people that are like, oh, we just moved to Webflow, and I was like, so how easy is it to find a developer? They're like, we have had we haven't found one yet. <laughs> it's like that's why I like WordPress. It's easy to find people for.
0: Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the basic building blocks of the website are, are super important, I think, and you you have to, as you said, you, you need access to talent. And and I tell you, one of the biggest challenges when it comes to managing a stack is making sure that you're easy to maintain compliance with security and privacy. It is one of the biggest challenges for a SaaS company these days. So we, we have SOC 2 compliance, and SOC 2 is a standard, if people aren't familiar with it, around security and privacy. And we, we deal with mostly mid-sized companies. We're not going after General Electric. That's not our target. You know, our target is people who spend uh, millions or tens of millions of dollars a year on their marketing, not hundreds of millions or billions. But even with them, even with, you know, mid-sized companies, uh, they tend to have really stringent security requirements because... They may sell to bigger companies, and anything that touches their systems has to be compliant. And so it's incredibly important to make sure that you have the right kind of security and privacy stance with all of your stack providers. So it's something we focus on a lot. And it, unless you are only selling to very small business, I would say it's one of the most important things, and it really drives decisions for us around what we use And sometimes it means that you don't go with the cheapest thing, because the cheapest thing for acquisition cost may cost you a lot more when it comes to getting it into compliance over time.
1: Let's dig into this security thing a little bit here. Security is an absolutely massive issue. You need to track your tools. You need to know where your vulnerabilities are. And I can't overstate this enough. The number one weakness in your company from a security standpoint is usually the marketer. The marketer has access to the most data in the company in many cases, and they're also the most lenient in regards to password management and best practices to keep our company secure. Whether it be through phishing emails, remote accessing your laptop, or just you using a crappy password, hackers are going to find a way to attack you as the marketer because they know you have something and have access to it that they can steal and in turn sell to data enrichment providers. Oh, wait a second. You didn't know that the enrichment providers bought stolen data all the time? Haha, <laughs> That's kind of funny. All right, let me tell you a quick story. Years ago, when I was being advised by the CMO of one of the largest data enrichment companies, I learned that they had purchased the 500 million user database from LinkedIn after there was a major hack. If you recall, LinkedIn got hacked a few years ago, and 500 million records were stolen. And that data set was sold to a lot of the enrichment providers. Now, this was done in the parking lot of the company in a large cash transaction in exchange for a usb stick for all the data from linkedin and you thought the data that they were getting was from like privacy no it's it's from pure theft in many cases now it's because of things like this that you need to make sure that your tools you are buying are either iso certified or SOC 2 certified and these are standards set by the international bodies to ensure that companies are certified and in good security Now, don't get me wrong. If you look up any of the most recent hacks on Google, you'll find that nearly all of the companies that had these certifications were the ones who got hacked, which goes to prove that there's a hot, hot market for data. Now, as Peter mentions later on, shortly after leaving Nuance, they suffered a brutal malware attack that made tons of headlines.
0: The malware attack targeted the Nuance Corporation, a tech company that helps people transcribe data, like doctors who dictate notes during surgery. Their website says they've engaged leading security experts to respond. Here in San Antonio, at least three of our major healthcare providers do use the Nuance system. But they say since the attack was aimed at that service provider, not the hospitals or our docs, it's like any cyber attack. Nobody is willing to comment on this for the record.
1: Hmm. The attack shut down Nuance's operations for over a month and many customers left. They reported that they lost about $68 million in revenue. Don't learn the hard way that improper management of your stack has made you vulnerable to hackers. Let me state this again. Know your tools and know what vulnerabilities there are. Now, let's get back to Peter and stop talking about the security stuff. Do you have your own kind of flavor in terms of tools or technologies that you find the most appealing? Like, is security like a number one priority? And then, like, what are the other things that you find as priorities when you're looking at the rest of the tools in your stack?
0: Yeah, it's a really great question, Dan. And security and privacy are may not be the first thing we look at, but it's absolutely an acid test. So it has to be compliant. It's got to be SOC 2 compliant. And if it's not, we've got a huge issue and we've got to disclose that to all of our, our customers, which is a huge issue and a pain for that. So it is really important. But there are, there are a few other things that are critical. One, you really need the right-sized in sort of the right complexity of a solution for your business. It's one of the reasons we chose HubSpot. You know, HubSpot is, and it's become a lot more sophisticated than it was a few years ago even, but it really is pretty easy to get up and running and to manage and for users to use. So usability, ease of integration, and ease of configuration without needing a bunch of specialists is really important for us. Because we, we want to make sure that we're getting really fast time to value. And we now look for things that integrate nicely into our infrastructure. So it's got to, you, you kind of pick a religion and then you stick with it. And unless you have a really compelling reason to shift from one core driver of the stack, again, we're wrapped all around HubSpot. Everything that we choose has to have a nice way to integrate into, um, into HubSpot. As an example, our contract management capability, we use a really great product called Contract Book, and Contract Book is really nicely integrated into HubSpot. And the way the workflow goes, it allows me to, you know, create a quote, have redlining built into the quote so people can change and and make comments and things like that, and then it tracks the whole thing. And it's really nicely integrated; it all flows from activities that happen. Directly in in HubSpot. And that's one of the reasons why that was a good solution for us because it just fit nicely into our platform.
1: I like it. So HubSpot is a a big integration. You know, I think it's interesting when we think about. HubSpot, right, as, as the hub of your model, right? And it's, you have all these different spokes of different integrations. And the integration in HubSpot seems really, really critical. I mean, I'm super thankful that Scott Brinker is leading ecosystem there, because I do remember when HubSpot had like no integrations and then Scott showed up and now there's hundreds, if not thousands of integrations. So it sounds like that integration component into that hub is, is really critical for the rest of the tools that you're choosing. You know, what, I, what I'm curious to better understand is, you're at a smaller company now, right? And you're growing and you were at Nuance before, which I mean, $2 billion company when you were there. What are the big differences that you see? Because you bring up this complexity factor and using the size and complexity for your business. And naturally the Marketo, I feel like is a nuance, right? Size platform while HubSpot may not serve their purposes. What's kind of your perspective on the difference between Plana and
0: Nuance's stacks? First of all, there, there were some tools, some choices that were different for us. So we were centered around Salesforce for our CRM at Nuance. And our marketing automation was, was Eloqua. And we were Oracle's Eloqua now. And we were actually very early in Eloqua. So I, I implemented it for the first time. I, you know, in, in air quotes here, um, a really smart, young at the time guy named Prashant Kha, who's now moved on to do other things, and he's a, a leader in marketing. Um, he was the guy who advocated for me that we implement Eloqua back in 2004 at Nuance when I did that. But a really interesting thing, one difference was that you needed deep specialists to run these tools. As an example, we by the time we were done, at, I was done at Nuance in 2017, we had a pretty decent-sized team of people who were managing Salesforce. But the, the really interesting thing was that we had our Eloqua users. So I had, I think, 175 people in my marketing team at Nuance. There were five Eloqua users. And that was really startling to me. And some of it was that it's a very sophisticated tool. And it's one of these things that you just... Don't just give to everyone. And I, I think there are use cases where some people give broader access to Eloqua, but it really came to, you know, setting up and flighting and managing campaigns. There were, there were five people who were qualified to do it. And that sort of deep specialization in having a specialist who can do these things is, I think, something you see in a much larger company. Nuance went through a really interesting transition. I think I can probably say this now. My statute of limitation has expired and it was publicly known that they had a pretty big outage in their systems, After it was after I left, thankfully, uh, due to a, a, a malware attack. They handled it really well, but it was a really nasty attack. And it was because they had such fragmented systems, they were all over the place, 100 acquisitions, lots of different companies, They they it was much easier for them to fall out of compliance and not being completely up to speed. And it really caused them to completely redo their infrastructure. And I know that, I can't even remember the name of the CMS, we'd used a content management system that was underpinning our website that was about five years out of maintenance. You couldn't even buy maintenance for it anymore. And ultimately, right after I left, I know the company went to Adobe Experience Manager which I've, I've heard is a fantastic product. I haven't personally used it before. I know they struggled with it because it was a very complex implementation. But again, that kind of thing that you do where you have deep specialists, complex implementations, that really happens when you get to much, much larger companies. And that became a real issue.
1: implementations are pretty different from a big company versus small one. At a small company, you can't afford specialists to run a large product like Eloqua. You've got a small team and this reduces your ability to use these kind of enterprise grade tools on the market. As a big company though, you've got the bandwidth to hire these specialists to run a big stack full of enterprise grade tools. In either case though, big or small, you can only really hire the people who can operate the tools. It takes a different type of specialist who knows how to implement these tools, and usually these people who implement the things correctly are not the same people who are going to operate or maintain the day-to-day operations of that tool. Going back to Peter's comment about Adobe Experience Manager, it's an amazing product if you can get it up and running. That's the key part though. I've seen many companies fail at these giant monolithic tools. Eloqua is another great example of this. I've seen companies that use only 10% of the product because they can't implement the other 90% of its features. The same thing happens with Salesforce, Marketo, and other big company-style tools. Implementation is the most critical stage when adding a new tool. If you mess up your taxonomy or maybe get your integration plans wrong or buy the wrong tool because it's overhyped, you're going to run into a lot of issues getting the value out of that product. I see this all day, every day in products like Segment or Amplitude, Salesforce, Pardot, and the list goes on. This is the exact reason why I got into tech stack management at Magon.io. This way, any company can get the right implementation and the right training so that they can get value from all of their tools. All right, so let's get back to Peter, though, because he's got some dropping of knowledge that we need to get into. I'd love to understand kind of your view on attribution modeling, doing marketing attribution. It sounds like your product enables you to consume some of that data. But what are your like hardcore opinions in regards to attribution at the moment?
0: Yeah, I I love this question um, because, I don't know, we might get in a fight about this, Dan, let's see. Uh, I think most attribution is hooey, it's witchcraft, it doesn't work. Here's why. I think people think about attribution the wrong way. What a lot of people try to do is they try to give credit to a piece of content in some cases or a marketing touch in a very complex campaign that may have hundreds of touches to a single customer as an example. And I just don't think it's that valuable to actually attribute a hard dollar value to that. And it doesn't work. It's too complicated in a lot of cases. Now, if you have a really simple kind of environment where you, you see a lot of cases where if, if you're doing a if you're a direct-to-cart e-commerce provider, yeah, you can probably attribute your your channel source and everything really clearly because everything is just connected and it's all 100% digital. Here's the reality, most people aren't like that. Most people have a much more complex marketing mix. Even if you have a fairly simple product, there may be some brand that, that affects things. There may be uh, you know a podcast that they listen to like this that has a piece of it. How do you really attribute those things? I just don't think it, it works that well. Here's what we advocate. What we advocate is picking your level for measurement. And there are kind of two levels that people measure at today, and I think they're both useful but not sufficient. So people measure at the tiny micro level. So they say, hey, this channel, this keyword in this channel is doing that. And again, really good to know if you're the person managing your keyword program to say that, Great, I'm going to optimize this particular thing within this domain. Or if you're managing the content plan and say, hey, this piece of content is doing really well, etc. Again, it's great when you're optimizing within that very specific world. The other end that people measure at is way, way, way too high level. So they measure at the CAC level. What's my CAC and what's my CAC payback? And again, really important to know, but that's one of those things that we talked about earlier. That's your report card that says, did I get an A or did I get a D? And again, it's it's useful, but not really sufficient. We really advocate that you measure the performance and optimize at the campaign level. And let me define what a campaign is. A campaign is not, I send an email to you. And unfortunately, the marketing technology providers like me have kind of ruined the word campaign What a campaign should be is a thematically aligned collection of activities that are driving toward a business goal. And that can be a whole bunch of things that collectively drive towards some business outcome. And if you're measuring a campaign, true campaign, then that's a really good way to start to measure value. And it's about sort of aggregating all the efforts and all the outcomes that are within one thematic thrust. And when you do that, then you can actually make meaningful decisions about, is this campaign working? Is that campaign working? That's the way that we like to think about it. We advocate that people do. Again, for 90% of marketers, it's the right level to focus on. And if you're a, one of the small number of people who are really focused on you know, one or two channels, direct-to-car conversion, maybe it's different. But for everyone else, we recommend that you really measure at that thematic campaign level.
1: I think you're spot on in regard to the campaign level. And we actually talked about this in the past when I was on your podcast about, um, in many cases, people use even UTM campaigns, since I'm so focused mm-hmm. on the tracking of campaigns. They use individual names in their campaigns for an email blast and then their newsletter and all these different things, and it's like, you should have a larger campaign that all of this rolls up to. And I think in many times, people aren't using campaign conventions in their UTMs to say, hey, this is part of a global campaign, but these are the other attributes about it so I know how to optimize. and I, I'm happy that we're not getting into an argument about this one in regards to attribution. Uh, I've been beating this drum for a few years uh, in regards to attribution, especially multi-touch attribution, should be used for optimization of the campaign. It should not be used as a meter stick for that individual campaign whether it's effective because there's so many pieces that come along with it that it's more focused on the optimization uh, than anything. And I think people miss that. They look at it as a historical reporting metric. Going back to your point, that's where I think CAC Channel CAC and stuff like that can give you more of your yardstick, but uh, I think I think you're spot on with the campaigns. The future is obviously interesting for me in regard to thinking about the way that tools and the stack are going to change. What are some of the predictions that you have for the tools that are going to be on the market in the next five or ten years? like how are things really going to evolve?
0: We think about this a lot because we are obviously in in this space. so w- one thing that's going to happen is you're going to see more and more chunking away of the spreadsheet solved problems. I mean, you were talking about with your UTM product, uh, with Plana that we use that's replacing spreadsheets. More and more of that is, is happening. Second thing that you're going to see, I I really believe that this no-code or low-code thing is going to be really critical for people going forward because you have so many tools. It's really important to not require a big integration to make things happen. Tools need to be incredibly plug-and-play the way that they work and integrate with each other. I think the other thing that is really important is that there's a whole consumerization of IT. I mean, I mentioned before, our marketing automation inside Nuance, when I was there, we had five users of sort of this super complex, very sophisticated tool. That's not really the best thing in the world. Ideally, what you want is tools to be incredibly intuitive for people. And it's one of the reasons, you know, my, my head of product and my head of UX both come from consumer. They've got consumer experience because the goal is to create something that doesn't require someone to read a manual, right? People should be able to show up and understand what the product means. And just like they can go to a website and schedule, book a plane, the same thing should happen with any kind of marketing technology product. It has to be that simple. So I think those things are incredibly important for people. I think that continued drive for you know further deeper connection between products is important as things get more fragmented across these stacks so i think the idea of sort of a, a data aggregator so hubspot has this concept of an operations hub that is kind of early in its life cycle it's kind of interesting to think about is there an easy plug and play way to get all my data in one place as an example so that's interesting And I think you're going to continue to see the real push on privacy and security. And I think the distributed ledgers and NFTs actually have a role in this. Especially around things like uh, validating that a person is really a person, as an example. So, there's some really interesting things that could happen leveraging that technology because there's so much sort of fakeable out there right now. I think being able to really determine that a person is the person that they say they are is going to become incredibly important. And then, oh my God, hopefully the death of the password.
1: Yeah, uh, well, you know, I, I really like LastPass. So while I love the tool, I agree with you. I would love the death of the password at the same time. That's awesome. Well, this has been amazing. I really do appreciate you taking the time. It's been an honor to be able to collect all of this ama- amazing education from you. You have an amazing background. So I, I know for myself and then as well as all our listeners, we're super grateful we got the chance to have you here.
0: Well, it's been a lot of fun, Dan. Uh, really great to catch up again. And, uh, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Wow,
1: what a great episode. Peter has so much experience and he's just so pleasant to hang out with. Now, we covered a lot today from SaaS killing the spreadsheet to security to campaign management and also what the future holds for us. But I want to circle back on a few things, right? Let's first talk about campaign management. I think everyone here should take a page from Peter's book when it comes down to designing your campaign structure. Now, at UTM.io, we see super advanced campaign naming conventions to try and make every campaign unique and easy to report on. But we also see a lot of overcomplication in campaigns as well. And in most cases, people are actually not rolling up to an actual campaign, but rather defining a tactic to death by using UTM campaign tracking codes. Now, if you want to learn more about how you can manage your campaigns and marketing and how to track them effectively, make sure you go Google UTM campaign conventions and check out the number one Google listing. Moving on to Peter's final points, though, not only are clunky spreadsheets going to die a slow and awesome death, but so are bad user experiences in SaaS. Now, if I cannot figure out how to use your tool in a few minutes, I'm gonna most likely move on to another and easier option. Now, with the rise of no-code and low-code solutions, there is even less of a barrier to entry to stomp out poorly designed and poorly built products. Take this as a warning if you're in SaaS. If you can't get the UI and UX right, you're gonna fail. Now, I don't mean to be too shock and drama here, but I do wanna make sure that people understand the user experience of your product matters. Well, that's going to be it for this week, okay? So make sure you join me next week on The Stack. Because you're interested in this podcast, go check out utm.io to get your campaign links in check. They have killed the dreaded UTM spreadsheet and made it free and easy for you to effectively track your marketing campaigns. But P.S. really quickly, I'm also the CEO and founder of UTM.io, and this is not a paid endorsement. It's just a shameless, humble brag about one of my amazing companies, okay? So I'll see you next week. Hopefully you check out UTM.io.
0: Bye.